What still remains when Christ says, it's finished, a barn's worth of memories and a book's worth of stories. But where do we go now? For three years we followed. We listened to the parables and witnessed his miracles. For three years we followed and now it is finished. But three days, three days, three days. Is the passion an intermission? Or will this play continue? They said these things happened, so the scripture would be fulfilled. Now, none of his bones are broken, and he's buried until. Yoishli. It is finished. Well, good morning, Menlo Church. Welcome, 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 and thank you so much for joining us today. Whether you're joining us at one of our Bay Area campuses in Saratoga, Mountain View, San Mateo, Menlo Park, or you're joining us online, I'm so glad that you have chosen to spend a few minutes with us. We've been preparing for Easter together in this series where we're focusing on the last words of Jesus on the cross. Today marks a really significant day as kind of the church for the last couple thousand years. If you're new or newer to faith and you're like, what's with all the palm things on the stage? Uh, we call this Palm Sunday and it commemorates and looks back to the week before Jesus would be crucified when this group of people laid down branches for Jesus to walk across and shouted, Hosanna, rescuer, savior. And that same crowd only days later would shout, crucify him. We're going to delve into that together, but before we do, I'm going to pray for us. And if you've never been here before, never heard me speak, I pray kneeling. And so many of the things that Mark just spoke to us about, um, so many of the things that we're thinking about in our moment, uh, those things really should humble us. Hopefully we don't, um, we don't allow ourselves to become anesthetized. Hopefully we don't become cold to the events even of just a few days ago, but we let them break our heart because they break God's and we ask him to give us power and perspective about what to do because of it. Would you pray with me? God, thank you. Thank you that it really is finished. The battle really is won and it belongs to you. But in the midst of it, while we wait for that someday, one day redemption and reconciliation of all things, we live with pain and brokenness. We live in a world where things are functioning in a way that they are not supposed to work like. So we look back on yet another week with the loss of life and natural disasters and another shooting, God. And, and I just pray that our politics would never be something we'd hide behind. We'd never look for the comfortable excuse to rationalize away being broken about it. But that, God, you would give us power, you would give us insight. And that, God, your justice would flow through your people into a world that desperately needs it. God, would you help us know how to show up with mercy and grace this week in every conversation, in every situation, even as we study together now. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. So obviously, as we think about this shift from Palm Sunday to Jesus hanging on the cross, Jesus was a pretty polarizing figure 2,000 years ago. And he was not the first or the last polarizing figure in the world, right? I think that all of us can relate to someone who is someone that some people would love and some people would hate. 
I'm guessing that in your head, you have some of these figures. I'm going to show a list of some of them. I'm just playing. I'm not going to do that. That would be crazy, right? Because I can't literally bring them up because we'd be so easily triggered. Names that you don't bring up around people you don't know very well. Maybe it's an actor or a musical artist. Maybe it's a podcaster, a business leader, certainly not a politician. None of them are polarizing, but like the other ones, you know? We are so easily triggered in this moment by these polarizing figures. And that's, that's how we know in this moment because we've overcorrected how easily we live into this reality. We are so captured by our moment and the expectations of it that we become blind. 19th and 20th century Anglican priest and scholar William Inge put it this way, the church that is married to the spirit of this age will be a widow in the next. Doesn't that feel prophetic? Aren't we feeling that today? We sold our generational influence for political and social expediency, but we weren't the first to do it. And Jesus has already met our need in it, and that is good news. Even Palm Sunday, the Sunday where we remember people calling Jesus Hosanna, it shows how quickly opinions can swing, how quickly someone can even feel for you, like you are someone they love until they don't. See, Forbes actually did a list of the 100 most influential figures in history, and I want to share the top five with you. Number five is Adolf Hitler. The surprise for me was not that he was on the list, but that he was number five. You're like, really? And it, before you think like, I'm going to make some noise, don't, because even if you think you're going to win in this list, you are not. Number four, Barack Obama. Number three, Jesus. Number two, this one is like, okay, Michael Jackson. <laughs> and number one, George W. Bush. Isn't that wild? And Jesus is on that list 2,000 years later. You can't make this stuff up. That's the moment, even with a recency bias, that we live into. See, Jesus, he had a mission. His mission was controversial. His mission was and is still to come into the world that he might save it, that he might redeem it. He came to do more than just share the gospel. He came to live, embody, and fulfill the work necessary to make the message of the gospel matter. Jesus came fully God and fully man to live a perfect life in your place, to die the ultimate death that you deserve and to come back from the grave. If you don't know, that's what Easter is about. Spoiler alert, right? So that anyone who turns from their way, who believes and receives his gift of grace by making him the Lord of their life will experience eternity with him. It would be easy to read the end of Jesus' life and assume that he just kind of ran out of gas. He just couldn't do it any longer. But that wouldn't be the whole story. As a matter of fact, our passage today reveals just how much that life didn't finish Jesus. He finished life. And you know people like that. You know people at the end of their life that they just finished so incredibly well. And you know some people that life finished them instead. In Jesus' final hours, there are two very important lessons for us to learn about how he finished life so well. And the first is that we're on borrowed authority. We're on borrowed authority. When our family first moved to Colorado, I was becoming the lead pastor of a church for the first time ever. I'd been an executive uh, and teaching pastor before, but even in that role, it was pretty obvious there were things I wasn't responsible for, things that I didn't have to do. There was just a part of my job that was a different scope. 
And for the first time stepping into that, I could feel the weight of a different role. Fast forward to taking this position, not only did it feel different to me, it felt different to our kids. One morning pretty early on in our time there after church, my wife went and picked up one of our kids and I'm not saying their name intentionally, went to pick up one of our kids from Sunday school and the Sunday school teacher had the story to tell. And the story was, while I was telling him uh, what needed to happen, it was a normal boundary, it was absolutely something that this teacher should have been able to do. And uh, after I told him what to do, he looked at me, didn't listen to me and said, do you know who my dad is. <laughs> that didn't take very long, right? And we all have probably in our life written a check with someone else's authority, a boss, a spouse, maybe a teacher. But we see Jesus show that in his earthly ministry, he was still acutely aware of the authority that God the Father carried even over his earthly ministry. Before Jesus' crucifixion, but after the illegal show trial that Jesus had been put through, he was presented to Pontius Pilate, who was a Roman governor presiding over this region. And the Jews, they were living under Roman rule. And as a result, they were subject to the capital punishment requirements of Rome, not their law. They were also afraid of how this group of people who supported Jesus might respond if they did something to Jesus without the authority of Rome. And so even though the death penalty existed within Jewish law, it didn't happen very often. And under Roman rule, they weren't allowed to carry it out on their own. The Romans used uh, death penalty regularly and without the same type of ethical constraints that the Jews had in their own law. So the interaction that we see between Jesus and Pilate, it comes after he's already had Jesus beaten and presented to the mob, humiliated, probably hoping that it would have been enough probably hoping that the mob seeing Jesus would have been like, okay, I think we're good now. But that's not what happened. As a matter of fact, in their final moments together between Jesus and Pilate, it says this, it says, he entered the headquarters again and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have the authority to release you and authority to crucify you? And Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. Basically, Pilate at this point is tired of the back and forth. He's tired of feeling backed into a corner by Jesus on one side and the mob on the other side. And finally, he just says, do you know who I am? You should speak to me. And Jesus says back, do you know who my father is? Jesus was going to go out on his own terms. And even after being beaten and publicly humiliated, he had a peace and a conviction that rattled Pilate. He wanted to release Jesus, but the mob made it clear that they would end his political career if he did. So eventually Pilate gave the mob Roman approval to have Jesus executed, but said, this is not on me, this is on you, which would have been extremely unusual. See, Jesus' confidence in the authority of the Father was so strong that it shook Pilate and shook other people in the face of his adversity. Does your confidence in your heavenly Father do the same when you face adversity? That's the example we get a chance to follow. 
See, just like with Jesus, we will be often offered promises by people and compromises that are, they're unable to actually grant. They can't fulfill what they promise. So I wonder, are you depending more on God or a fraud in what you're going through right now? That you think, if I just get that one more rung up the ladder, if I just get that many more zeros in my bank account, if I can just move to that zip code, if my kids can just achieve that status or standing, get into that school, find that next step in their life, I'm telling you, anything that isn't Jesus is temporary. And if it's the thing you're clinging your life to, you will eventually be disappointed. It's so easy and so tempting to settle for a lesser story than the one that God has written for you. And here's the thing, usually we settle for the story we can control. And so when our life gets big enough and complicated enough and hard enough that we can't control it anymore, we limit it down. Our youngest child is Wells, he's three, and sometimes he will pick out a book for us to read at night. And, and lately they've become shorter and simpler uh, on purpose. <laughs> the reason is because he wants to read the book. And so he will only pick books that are on the level he can read at, which is cute on one level, but also it gets kind of tiring, right? Because I'm reading the same book with him every single night. But I'm telling you, I think that sometimes God looks at the story that you and I are willing to let him write in our life, and he feels the same way. See, what, what we all need to be willing to do is say, God, there's components of my story that are too difficult and too heavy and too complicated for me to carry. I need to surrender I need to trust you beyond my comprehension. God's calling you and me to do the same thing. God can hold the complexity of your story, but you have to surrender your plan to his, just like we see Jesus model 2,000 years ago. See, Jesus was committed to finishing the mission he was sent to earth to fulfill. What is your mission to finish? What does God want to do with everything from your greatest success to your deepest suffering? I can guarantee you this, it is more than you realize, that God wants to take your greatest achievements, your greatest mistakes, your greatest suffering, and do something with it that will echo into eternity. Jesus, he had incredible rhythms of connecting with the Father and connecting with his friends, the disciples, because he knew that this moment was coming. He knew how critical it was. Author and speaker Ruth Haley Barton highlights the need this way. She says, we bind ourselves to each other in times of strength so that in moments of weakness, we do not become unbound. Look, the greatest day for you, even if you're having an amazing season in your life, the greatest day for you to build meaningful rhythms with God and meaningful connections with people, the greatest day to bind yourself to others was yesterday. The second best day is today. Because here's the thing, when we wait until we're in crisis and then we ask God to show up or we are desperate in need of community, it is so much harder than it needs to be. As a pastor, I will regularly have people who will ask me, hey, this is, this is the dumpster fire that my life is right now. Can you help me connect with God or connect with people? Absolutely, I'd love to do that. And I wish we'd started talking a year ago because it could be so much simpler if we had but we do this, don't we? Maybe for you, you're tempted in times of strength to take credit and shift blame. And then when times of pain and weakness come, rather than pursuing others, you isolate yourself. We isolate ourselves even further. 
See, the story of Jesus finishing well is just as much about how we started and how he middled than just how he finished. How are you middling? For some of you, that's your story. You've been following Jesus for a long time. And the, the task for you is to remain faithful. For some of you, you're early in your faith or you're even just considering faith. How are you starting? See, this season, the season of Easter, it's an invitation to get bound up in a relationship that's closer than ever. Jesus could have this kind of perspective in his life because he knew he was on borrowed authority. And so are we. Sometimes we forget. Sometimes we think we're in control, but we are not. Maybe more personally than you, Jesus knew the second lesson, which is we're on borrowed time. Time is an interesting concept, certainly for somebody like Jesus, but even for us. As a parent with young kids, I've heard this phrase for many years, that the days go slow and the years go fast, right? Some days with little kids, you're like, this day is never going to end. <laughs> and then you blink and it's been a decade. And you go, where did the time go? We get older and it's easy to reflect on how we have the most time when we least appreciate it as human beings. And by the time we're ready to take it in, by the time we're ready to savor it, we have very little left. It's an interesting component of time. Jesus is hanging on the cross, and I'm sure that thoughts of time and what work he has been here to finish, I'm sure that those thoughts were flooding his mind even as his body and soul felt the weight of the punishment and wrath of the Father that was being poured out on him for us. John records that moment this way. It says, after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it up to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. In the first part of this passage, Cheryl did a great job last week breaking down the purpose of Jesus that's describing his thirst in the moment as a part of fulfilling the promise or what we call messianic prophecies made about him that were written centuries before his life. The second part, the offer of this sour wine, almost feels like it grants permission, right? Permission for Jesus to finish his earthly ministry, that this part of his eternal plan had been completed. And he says one word that we translate into three, it is finished. This was written in Greek, and in Greek the word is tetelestai. It's an intentional choice by Jesus to conclude something, to finish something. Life wasn't finished with him, he was finished with it. See, the author of Hebrews, it describes it this way. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So here we are thousands of years later reading this. And it is so easy to bring chronological snobbery into it, isn't it? So easy for us to look at this and go, how could anyone ever think 
that God would be satisfied by animal sacrifices. But you see, they were never really designed to do that. They were designed to remind a group of people that there was a common moral standard that they perpetually fell short of. That there was something greater that they needed. Someone greater that they needed. And we do things all the time that we think will sort of make us right with God. If you're a Christian, you have one version of that. If you're not a Christian, you probably have some other versions of that. But I would argue that one of the byproducts of our moment in culture is that there is no common moral framework. And so this idea of sin is a very difficult concept because who's Mark, right? If we talk about sin or we talk about an objective reality that you don't agree with, we just call one another's objective realities fake news and we move on. But see, this system and God's standard by which it would be offered was for the sake of reminding them that the law was just a shadow. See, life didn't finish Jesus. He finished his life. It's a huge difference. This word tetelestai, it shows up in three different forms in this one sentence. It only shows up a handful of times, six times in the rest of the entire New Testament. John didn't want us to miss this. This is the new covenant. The new agreement between God and mankind, where instead of us trying to get to God through sacrifices and obedience ourselves, instead God got to us and was the perfect substitute. See, later on in the New Testament of your Bible, uh, we are told that the law was our tutor. It was designed for that purpose. It was designed to show us who we really are and what we really need in God. That the sacrifices of the Hebrew scriptures, they were merely shadows of the ultimate sacrifice that Jesus would make on the cross. It was always leading to this. Jesus experienced things sequentially as a human in a way that 18th century pastor and theologian Jonathan Edwards describes this way. He says, Christ's incarnation was a greater and more wonderful thing than ever had yet come to pass. The creation of the world was a very great thing, but not so great as the incarnation of Christ. It was a great thing for God to make the creation, but not so great as for the creator himself to become a creature. See, the God who made time and made the creation it would give sequence to, set himself inside of it, subject to it for your sake, for my sake, for the sake of that friend or family member, that neighbor, that coworker that you're praying for, that they would find and follow Jesus too. It should be a sobering reality for us as we think about God but it should also be as we think about ourselves. See, this idea that Jesus understood and processed time is so important because his incarnation is the only time he was ever subject to it. We see in Jesus the example of what it means to number our days. We're told elsewhere in the New Testament to number our days because like sand in an hourglass, it's running out quickly. Each day is a gift. And for some of us, maybe you feel like you're, you're so young, this is not really relevant to you. For others of you, you're acutely aware of that. For me, that, that connection hit very quickly this week. A week ago today, I was traveling and uh, I was one of those people where everything came crashing down in one second. I was coming through the airport, getting through the security line, and my bin was on the conveyor belt in an early morning flight. And as it came through the conveyor belt on the other side, my phone screen was up and I could see that it was ringing. 
And I, I picked up the phone, and that call was like a cliff in my life. As I listened to the person on the other end, um, I was told that friends of my mom who had lived alone went to check on my mom after she didn't show up for Bible study last week and they found that she had passed away in her sleep. I grew up in trauma and abuse and my mom was, she's my safe person. My mom when people didn't believe in me with dyslexia and a reading disability and a stutter and lazy eyes that had to be surgically corrected, my mom always believed in me. I will miss my mom every day for the rest of my life. Many of you, as you've found out about that, you've reached out and um, expressed just supreme kindness. I really, really appreciate that. My mom believed so much in numbering her days. She knew she was on borrowed time. She was almost 80, and while she never finished college, she was actually taking online seminary courses even as her eyes were deteriorating in the last month. My mom had an appetite to make sure she finished life well. But I wonder for you, where, where have you allowed time to get away from you? Maybe, maybe it's the time for you to grab it back and to invest in the people and the places that you know matter most, just like we've been talking about through this series. Your pursuit of God, your key friendships and relationships, your family. Life will never slow down. If you're waiting for it to, you will be waiting forever. Next week, we're gonna gather and celebrate Easter as a church, and I'm thrilled about it to meet people, to highlight the moment the most important moment in human history and to share the hope of heaven with the hurting in our world. But let's be sure we're paying attention this week. See, Jesus, he was finishing life well, but we have a lot of people around us, people that we think we know, people who look okay on the surface, but they aren't finished, they're just done and there's a big difference. They need help and they need hope, but they don't know who or how to ask for it. They are paralyzed from pain, distraction, and disappointment. And are we even looking for them? Would we even know what to look for? My mom, she felt no pain as I took that call a week ago. But I did. My mom felt no loss or heartache. But I did. All of this is happening a week ago at the end of the security line, like where you collect all your stuff. And I have been the person standing back, looking at someone who's struggling to put their belt on and been like, bro, have you done this before? Let's go, you know? I was that person. I was just in a fog, stunned, immobilized. See, people will rarely just come out and tell you what's happening in their life when they need help and hope in their lives. But I've used these words over the course of the years, these three knots that I wanna give you as a tool, things to listen for this week. These three knots that if you hear someone say them, it's an invitation for an invitation. The first knot is this, when someone says things are not going well, maybe that's job, maybe that's their marriage, maybe that's something with their kids, maybe it's something in their life beyond that, things are not going well. The second one is, I'm or we're not ready for this. Maybe it's a, a season of their life. Maybe it's 
chaotic situation, maybe it's crisis, we're not ready for this. And then the third one is we're not in church right now. If you hear one of those three knots, that's an invitation to an invitation. And so even in the Bay Area, I want to just check with you real quick. Is it still okay to ask this question in the Bay Area? Uh, what are you doing for Easter this year? Is that okay? Do we get canceled for that? Are we, are we good? <laughs> so I would just ask that question to some people in your life this year, this week. Say, what are you doing for Easter this year? And if one of those knots comes out of someone's mouth, here's your response. It's really easy. You should come with me or you should come with our family to church. We would love to have you. It's literally it. You just got evangelism training. <laughs> See, you can post stuff to your social media, and I hope you do. You can send out an email or some texts, and I hope you do. But be looking for people in your life that might be okay on the surface, but definitely aren't if you just take the time to stop and listen. Menlo Church, we are um, three months in together. You know that? It's been one heck of a three months, hasn't it? God has been stretching all of us together. He's been stretching me. But I hope what you hear is that this call to share the hope of Jesus, to be inviting people to love our neighbors, it is not an optional component to following Jesus. And if you long to see your community find and follow Jesus, you are an ambassador of the hope he provides. Even if you've never had a spiritual conversation like this, just ask God to make it obvious this week. Ask him to show you the person you need to talk to. I'm asking God to bother you with someone on your heart that you can't shake, a spiritual ir irritation to provocation that you have to do something about. For me, a week into this reality of losing my mom, I can't imagine how I would be feeling without the hope of heaven for her. I'm so thankful for the gift of faith that she's passed down to me and the confidence that I have in her life, while it wasn't perfect, was centered on the good news of Jesus. We all have people in our lives who are experiencing deep and profound pain without that same hope. And if you're a follower of Jesus, you have been put in their life to help them find the same hope that you have. Something that I'm going to miss with my mom, I didn't get to do it as much in recent years, but I grew up going to church with my mom every week, um, sometimes more than once. And every now and then, still to this day, I would, I would get a chance to worship with my mom. If you don't know this, my mom's first generation American Russian Jew. Uh, like on her tallest day on a step stool with heels. She was about five foot tall, just sassy as anything. And uh, I can remember standing next to her in a church service and my mom has the worst singing voice you've ever heard. <laughs> like, I'm not sure, I'm still convinced she might've been trying to sound bad. And I would lean down to my mom as only the youngest child can do and I would say, it's a really good thing that the Lord sees your heart. <laughs> and then she would pinch me and we would keep singing. But her heart in worship was more beautiful than any of our singing voices. She had experienced a full life with ups and downs and the hope of heaven reached her in worship every time. One of my mom's favorite songs was Amazing Grace, specifically the last verse. And I thought as we considered what Jesus has done for us, and Easter right in front of us, we might just sing those last few lines together. Even if you're unfamiliar, would you join me?
When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we God, I lift up each and every person in this room or any room that we're getting a chance to be a part of right now for folks that know you and love you. And those words are their life. They are, they are depending on them. And I pray for those, God, who sang those words or heard those words, and for them, they seem so foreign, so incompatible to their life. God, would you meet both groups and everyone in between? Would you draw us to yourself this season? Would you remind us, God, remind our souls, even if it feels like we've never known, that we were made for eternity. We were made for a relationship with you. And that relationship has been purchased by your son. In whose name we pray. Amen.